It's the 365 Days of Astronomy podcast, coming in 3, 2, 1. From Earth, it's Space Radio. This is Paul Sutter, and coming up, we're talking about where the Furbies are coming from, and of course, taking listener questions about all things in this beautiful universe. We record every Thursday at 8 p.m. Eastern, and you can follow along or leave a voicemail at spaceradioshow.com. And today's Blue Shift, I'll be talking about Triangular XL1, but first, the news. Hey, space cadets, welcome to Space Radio. I'm Paul Sutter, astrophysicist at Stony Brook University and the Flatiron Institute. And for the next half hour, your agent to the stars. We've got an exciting show for you today where we talk about all things space, astronomy, astrophysics, rocketry. If it's above the Earth's atmosphere, it's in this show's universe. This show lives on listener questions. We record every Thursday at 8 p.m. Eastern here at Spaceman Studios in New York City. So leave a voicemail at spaceradioshow.com to get yourself on the air. You can also follow along with our space cadets tuning in live from around the world, including but not limited to New Smyrna Beach, Christchurch, New Zealand, Treasure Coast, Florida. Is that what the pirates left? I don't know. Warsaw, Poland, Ashburton, New Zealand, Plattsburgh, New York, Washington, D.C., Chi-Town, shout out, Vancouver, B.C., Howell, New Jersey, Montevideo, Uruguay, Austin, Planet Earth, and Malvern, P.A., We're taking questions that the space cadets send. Not all of them. Sometimes all of them. I think I managed to do that once. But you know what? We're going to do it anyway. Seriously, folks, I've only prepped 10 minutes to show material tops. So get those questions in. Before I start taking calls, I want to share some interesting bits of news I caught recently. And once again, Furby's. Are in the news, and once I, when Furbies are in the news, I can't help but talk about it. There's a deep, unconscious driving force that forces me to talk about Furbies, and Furbies come around in the news every six months or so, and I just, I just have to. And guess what? There's a Furby story. By the way, there's a conference. The American Astronomical Society meeting is happening right now out in Hawaii. Lucky ducks. They are, quote, unquote, having very serious discussions about the nature of the universe and not at all sipping Mai Tais on the beach. I swear it. I swear it. I've never, I've never done that. I've never gone to a AAS meeting and skipped a session or two. No, no, we're very serious astronomers. And anyway, so there's lots of astronomy news coming out this week because of the conference. And one of them is about Furbies. And of course, when I say Furbies, I mean F. RBs, which are fast radio bursts. 
I don't know if the astronomer astronomers who came up with this name of fast radio bursts thought that they would eventually be called Furbies. I don't know if I'm the only human on the earth that calls them Furbies instead of FRBs, but I just can't help myself. FRBs, fast radio bursts. What are these? These are bursts of radio that happen very fast. Very descriptive name. They're just like, whoop, like, like they happen in less than a second. They scan across a bunch of frequencies. So when we're observing with radio telescopes, we'll just get this flash of radio energy that are incredibly bright. In I read one estimate that in a single fast radio burst, the amount of energy released is more than the sun will emit over 100 years. So that's a tremendous amount of energy compressed into a very, very small amount of time, scanning over a bunch of frequencies, and then it goes away. The vast majority of FRBs just happen once and never, ever happen again. We've been seeing them for about 10, 15 years now, ever since really we got sensitive enough to be able to detect them. And every once in a while, there are repeating FRBs, which are even more mysterious. And the thing is, they don't seem to come from any one kind of galaxy. They don't seem to come from any one particular direction on the sky. In this latest FRB, this latest Furby, named, are you ready for this? FRB 180916.J0158 plus 65. Now that's a name for the history books. They were actually able to pinpoint the origins of this FRB, this Furby, and it came from a spiral galaxy not too unlike our own, a mere 500 million light years away, which is the closest Furby ever found. And this is the only Furby confirmed to come from a galaxy like our own. We've seen them in dwarf galaxies. We've seen them in giant galaxies. Now we're seeing them in a spiral galaxy like our own. All this does is add up to the mystery because it's hard to come up with an explanation for Furbies, if they're coming from all sorts of different galaxies. If you say, oh, these are coming from galaxies that have a lot of star formation, so it maybe has something to do with the formation of stars. But then we find Furbies in galaxies that are hardly popping off stars at all. And you're like, oh, maybe they come from like dying stars, but then but then we get one from like an, uh, a spiral galaxy like ours. It's just, it's just a mess. Obviously, it involves a lot of energy, which usually it means something is dying in the universe, something is going catastrophic, but what exactly we are really having a hard time. So as of today, barely into the new year, Furbies are still a mystery. Remember, you can leave a voicemail or follow along live. Just go to spaceradioshow.com for the links. That's the latest grace when it comes to space, but it's time to have a conversation. We've got a voicemail ready to go. Hey, Greg, why don't you play that tape? Um, hello, my name is Abdullah. I would like um, to know uh, how can I start learning um, cosmology? Because I don't know where to start, to be honest. So I would really love to know where to start and also what books would be good to read uh, and help me through my path. 
Thank you. Oh, Abdullah, this is such a wonderful question. I'm glad you asked. I get this question a lot of either students or high school students or or people that are just casually interested in astronomy. They've heard about it and they hear all sorts of cool stuff about cosmology, about astrophysics, astronomy, and they don't know where to start. My first suggestion always is to watch YouTube videos. No, that is never my first suggestion. My first suggestion is like, if you're going to do this, why don't you go all the way? Like if you're interested in cosmology, if you're interested in astronomy, if you're interested in astrophysics, why don't you go all the way and make this a hobby, which means signing up for a course. Why don't you look up your local community college, your local university, and see if you can audit a class. A lot of times, no joke, Uh, Most universities have programs for senior citizens where senior citizens can audit classes for free, but I am not kidding. Look up the courses offered by the astronomy department or the physics department. Look at what's being offered the next semester. Email the professor. Just cold email. Just cold email. Say, hey, I am not a student. I have no interest in pursuing a career in astronomy, but I'd really like to learn more. Is it okay If I just walked in and sat in on your class, that's it. That's it. Now, some professors may be uncomfortable with it. Most professors are probably not going to care at all. They're like, yeah, sure, whatever. Obviously, the university doesn't technically want you there unless you're paying the big bucks. But on the professor level, they like the idea that someone random is enjoying this and wants to show up voluntarily, unlike the majority of their classes that have to be there for an elective or for some mandatory class. So seriously, just email the professor, call up the professor, say, ask if you can all the class and just sit in because you're curious, you'd like to learn and then just sit in, take the class, do the homework for yourself. A lot of universities, a lot of community colleges will offer some sort of intro to cosmology class, a cosmology course. And this was one of my most favorite classes to teach a cosmology course, not meant for professional astronomers. This is a cosmology course meant for people outside of physics or astronomy. So the math requirements are going to be a little bit lighter. It's going to be more discussion based, more reading based by the textbook, whatever the professor, the professor probably wrote the textbook for just buy that professor's textbook, read it, go along with it, participate in the discussions and commit to that thing. Like once or twice a week, like turn it into a hobby. If you can't find a cosmology course, then I recommend doing the exact same strategy with an astronomy course, a basic astronomy course or a basic physics course. Because the things you will learn in an astronomy course or a physics course or both will allow you to go out and read popular books about cosmology or watch videos about cosmology, some of the higher level stuff, and you'll have a much better grounding. You'll have a much firmer understanding of the basics when it comes to these topics. So if someone says the word redshift, you're like, oh, wait, I I took this astronomy class and I learned what redshift means. I know what this person is talking about. And so I don't have to have a big mental hurdle over this one jargon word. I can just move on and get to the point of whatever this person is talking about. So I, I, I really advocate for that. Like learn it. If you want to learn something, learn it from the experts. 
you know, yes, some faculty, some professors are making YouTube videos and they, and they do a really good job. There's things like Khan Academy, which is pretty cool. I suppose there's the book that I wrote. I don't know your place in the universe, understanding our big messy existence, which serves as an amazing introduction to cosmology, but you know, but get it from the source. Get it from the people who are literally researching this. Get it from the people who are making this their day job. What better avenue is there to just learn it from those people? Even if they're, they're, they're not the perfect instructor or the most energetic presenter, you're getting it right there. So give it a shot. You know what? Just go all out. Risk it all. Don't be scared. Don't be nervous. The students don't care. They might notice you the first day and after that, because I have had people audit my class who, who were adults who were obviously not college students. The college students noticed for a week, and then they realized that they're way too busy to worry about these kinds of things. And if I just say, yeah, there are people auditing this class. Don't worry about it. They say, okay, yes, professor, we won't worry about it. So give it a shot. What have you got to lose? I'm Paul Sutter, and this is Space Radio Beside Your Dignity. This show is brought to you by you. Go to patreon.com slash pmsutter to learn how you can support the show, and I'll see you after the break. Welcome back, everyone. I'm Paul Sutter, and this is Space Radio. We've got so many more questions ready to go, but remember, you can join the conversation by leaving an online voicemail or by following the live streams. Check out spaceradioshow.com for all the links. And now, it's time to give some space cadets some love. And what do we got starting us off the bat? We've got Campbell Duncan on Twitch asking, how do we see the light of first scattering when the cosmos was soon filled with non-ionized hydrogen blocking the view? Thanks heaps. Well, what we see, uh, to give everyone some background, the universe is big and it is expanding, which means in the past it was smaller. And at some point in the past, it was so small, small, so hot and so dense, it was a plasma. It was a crazy hot soup of charged particles in radiation all bouncing around each other like crazy. But then the universe expanded and cooled, and it switched from being a hot plasma to a relatively chill neutral gas. And that process released a bunch of radiation. This radiation persists to the present day. We call it the cosmic microwave background. When it was released, when the universe was just 380,000 years old, it was literally white hot and had a temperature of a few thousand Kelvin. Nowadays, it has a temperature of three Kelvin and is all the way down in the microwaves, but it completely soaks the sky. This image, this, these, this light is something we call the surface of last scattering because it's the last time this light bounced around all crazy and then got loose and was able to freely stream throughout the universe until it hits things like our eyeballs or our detectors. And so we call that the, the surface of least scattering. And we can see it because the entire universe was soaked in it. So what we see as the edge of our universe, what we see as this ancient fossil light is from a patch of the universe that is now inaccessible to us because that light was released, traveled to us, and in the meantime, the universe has expanded over the course of 13.8 billion years. And so now that 
patch of the universe that emitted that light is now unfathomably far away from us and expanding away from us so fast that we can never reach it. But the light is still here. It's like getting a postcard from a friend who moved to Europe and is never moving back and you can't buy a plane ticket. So you can never visit them again, but you you get that one last postcard. The cosmic microwave background, this light, this ancient light, was also generated right here in this patch of space that we call the solar system, that we call the Milky Way. It wasn't the solar system. It wasn't the Milky Way back then. It was just a a hot patch of the universe. It, too, emitted light, and now this light is somewhere else. It is somebody else's cosmic microwave background, and we're the ones who are inaccessible to them. So we get to see this light because the universe cleared out. It went from foggy to transparent, and this light was just left to hang around and float around until it hits something, and some of that light is finally hitting our detectors. Next question, Cosmic. Can you show them how to calculate the Hubble constant, please? They're still getting it wrong. Wow, yes. Still in the news. Hubble constant. This is the expansion rate of the universe as it is today. We've got no clue what's going on, folks. Some sets of measurements are calculating uh, a Hubble constant that is relatively low, like 68 kilometers per second per megaparsec, if you're curious about the units. And some sets of measurements are making it seem higher. These measurements disagree. Are we getting the measurements wrong? Are we getting physics wrong? Are we getting the universe wrong? Are we getting all the above wrong? I tend to lean to getting, we're getting the measurements wrong, but who knows? Only time will tell. Arnetta Davis on YouTube is asking, I've hearing a lot about the discovery of the Radcliffe wave. Can you give an explanation of what it is and why it's important? This is another result coming out of the meeting, the American Astronomical Society, the AAS meeting out in Hawaii. As everyone is sipping Mai Tais on the beach, they occasionally mutter something scientific about something they're working on, and the press is right there to lap it up. And this is a really cool feature that we've discovered inside the Milky Way galaxy. There is a, I want you to imagine almost like a giant snake that's, uh, it's huge. It's thousands of light years long. And imagine the snake plunging in and out of the disk of the Milky Way like this. And if you're just listening to me on the radio or a podcast, I want you to imagine my, my, me waving my arm because that's about what it's like. This is a feature of newly formed stars, of stars that have just hatched, that have just formed. Why it takes the feature of this wave and not like a bubble or a a block or some other structure we still don't fully understand. Probably there was a region of our galaxy that started popping out stars and There's all sorts of complicated, interesting gravitational interactions that twisted all these stars up into this interesting shape. It's given this name because uh, I believe it was identified by researchers at the University of Radcliffe, if I remember right. And so hence the Radcliffe wave. And maybe that's the name of the next hit viral TikTok dance. Or not. I'm not exactly sure. Engineering on YouTube is asking which constellation has the least sticks in its figure. 
whenever we see constellations, we play connect the dots with the stars. And I believe the, uh, the most boring constellation in terms of really you're actually going to assign a name to that constellation is Canis Minor. Canis Minor is the little dog and consists of two stars connected by a straight line. Yeah. Someone just saw like two stars, you know, there's something in Greek or Persian and next to it is Canis Major, the big dog with Sirius, the brightest star in the sky. And it looks pretty impressive and vaguely canine-like. And then next to it, they're like, oh, maybe they're like making the constellations. And then there are these two left over that didn't really belong anywhere else. And I'm like, oh, shoot. Guys, we need a constellation. What do you got? What do you got? And someone's like, stick. And they're like, no, that's too obvious. We, we need to be creative. And they're like, how about a little dog? Fine. Okay, fine. <laughs> and it's apparently it's the only little dog in the sky. It's the only two stars in the sky that look like a little dog. Listen, I don't understand the origins of Canis Minor, but there it is. They were left over. Uh, the space cadets are agreeing with me. They're just left over. Like, oh, yeah, we, we need a constellation here, don't we? Um, Nancy Graziano on YouTube is asking... Are FRBs directional in nature? Are Furbies directional in nature? If so, I think detecting one would be a stroke of luck. We don't know. We don't know if FRBs are like a spherical blast and it's just a matter of power and then we see it. Or if it's something like a jet and the jet has to be lined up right in our faces to see. We suspect it is maybe a jet, which explains why they're so rare. And unfortunately... We're almost out of time today on Space Radio. But before we go, it's time for the Blue Shift. I'm Paul Sutter, and you're listening to Space Radio. And this is the Blue Shift, my opportunity to get a little bit closer to you. And I want to give a huge shout-out today to a space cadet that got a little bit closer to me. An artist by the name of Preston Sturgis. And you can find out more about Preston at psturges.com. That's P-S-T-U-R-G-E-S.com. He's an artist. He does all sorts of cool stuff, including uh, music and novels and also paintings. He sent me a painting. I'm not kidding. He sent me a painting. He's like, Paul, I like your work. Um, I thought you might appreciate it. He sent me a painting of something he calls Triangulum XL1, number 41. And he included a lovely note. And it's absolutely breathtaking, the painting. Uh, once I get it up and mounted, I will share a picture on social media. Uh, once, once I find a good landing spot for it in Spaceman Studios. But... I checked it out. It is absolutely stunning. And in the note, Preston says, uh, Hi, Paul. Here's Triangulum XL1, number 41. My protagonist looks off into the great immensity from the loneliest duty station effort. Keep up the wonderful work. All blessings to you, Preston. Once I get it up, I can't wait to show you because the painting is gorgeous. The painting evokes this sense. It really does. Because uh, I looked at the painting before I read the note. It evokes this sense of loneliness, of enormity, of expanse, of of smallness. Uh, the same kinds of beautiful mixtures of feelings I get when I look at a clear, dark sky. And anytime an artist is inspired by science, inspired by astronomy or any kind of science, I just... 
my heart just like skips double time. I just love it. So thank you so much, Preston. I truly do appreciate it. I will get some pictures up on social media once I get it mounted. And if you're curious about more Preston's work, please go to P-S-T-U-R-G-E-S dot com. And unfortunately, this broadcast is almost done. Thank you for joining me on this voyage of space radio. Once again, I'm Paul Sutter, and this show is brought to you by you. Visit patreon.com slash PM Sutter to learn how you can contribute. Thanks to Greg Mobius for producing Nancy Graziano for wrangling the space cadets and all the fine crew at WCBE radio for making this show possible. Catch the live stream every Thursday at 8 PM Eastern. Visit space for all the info and links. And of course, thanks again, space cadets for listening. See you next week. And remember science is for sharing and of transmission. Across 10 years and more than 12 million downloads, we've brought you day after day of content. Thank you for making this possible. Now we've added a new way to donate to 365 Days of Astronomy to support editing, hosting, and production costs. Just visit www.patreon.com forward slash 365 Days of Astronomy and donate as much as you can. Share the podcast with your friends and send the Patreon link to them too. Every bit helps. As we head toward our 10th anniversary on January 1st, 2019, we have to ask, what in the cosmos do you want to hear about? Let us know by emailing us at info at 365daysofastronomy.org. Thank you. You are listening to the IYA 365 Days of Astronomy podcast. The 365 Days of Astronomy podcast is produced by the Planetary Science Institute. Audio post-production by Richard Drum. Bandwidth donated by Libsyn.com and Wizard Media. You may reproduce and distribute this audio for non-commercial purposes. Please consider supporting the podcast with a few dollars or euros. Visit us on the web at 365daysofastronomy.org or email us at info at 365daysofastronomy.org. This year we will celebrate the Year of Everyday Astronomers as we embrace amateur astronomer contributions and the importance of citizen science. Join us and share your story. Until tomorrow, goodbye.